Welcome to the Acamedia Podcast. I'm Christine Becker. And I I am not a cat. You're not a cat. I'm not a cat. I, I, I'm here <laughs> live. I'm, I am not a cat. That was amazing. This is Now you know when we were recording, just after that historic week of the I am not a cat. Well, moment. you know, <laughs> I, I, I am not a cat. I am, I am Michael Kackman, though. <laughs> well, and then the whole... You know, I might be too online with this, but then the whole milkshake duck situation, then, you know, I'm not a cat lawyer, got milkshake ducked in that, you know, it's. It's a, the whole world's wild at heart and weird on top. Yep. Yep. That's, that's how things are going yep. here in here February of 2021. Uh, wild and weird stuff. Yep. yep. Uh, and yes, I, this is, uh, you're Chris Becker and I'm Michael Kackman and this is Acomedia. Those things are all true. Woo-hoo. That's factual information. Yep. And we are the official podcast of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Woohoo! Getting ready for yes. uh, our glorious uh, online conference that our conference organizers have been working really, really hard on, on preparing for. Yeah, kudos to everyone for that incredible undertaking, just putting together the program and deciding, you know, who's going to go where and, and including with like time zones. And, and, yeah. and you know, I, there's some difficult situations, I'm certain, for whether you're on the West Coast of the United States or whether you're in Australia. I mean, the Australians always have to deal with those difficult situations. They do. And um, now we get to, too. And that's appropriate, too. Yep, exactly. So there's um, a leveling there, at least. Um, but yeah, really incredible undertaking. And I'm, you know, obviously, it would be Great to have it in person, but I understand the situation, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the the you know Zoom weekend SCMS Zoom party is gonna gonna go. Yeah, um, and you know, as with so much in this past year, it is really tempting to just like whenever you have like any kind of check in with somebody, like you know, talking to a friend or talking to family or just bumping into people. Um, it's just so tempting to kind of fall down the well of of uh fetching you know because there's just so much that's really irritating but um it is it's a good opportunity to be appreciative and recognize that um a lot of people are working really hard to try to make this whole uh miserable season of our lives a little bit more bearable and and the uh scms folks are among those uh righteous people Yes. Yeah, so thank you to all of them. And I think our episode today will give you a little, you know, feeling, a little, little preparatory uh, uh, feeling for SCMS because we are continuing our SCMS awards um, thank yous from last year and um, honoring those folks and giving them a chance to, um, to tell you a little bit more about their work. So that's uh, two more of those segments we've got in this episode today. Uh, but then first up, we've got a big old round table. It's round so table prepare time. You for listening in on some SCMS round tables. Yeah, this one uh, is discussing fan studies in light of, you know, wave your arms around kind of weekly things. (laughs) 
Right. And especially it came about in the wake of, uh, however you want to call it, the insurrection, the, the riot um, that happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And we saw fan study scholars saying, boy, you know, we could bring something to the conversation here to help understand better what happened and especially help clarify words like cosplay and, and fan fiction that they were seeing journalists use. And so our own intrepid Stephanie Brown followed up with them on those tweets and got a group of fan study scholars together um, to chat about how fan studies could help us better understand uh, what happened. Yeah, it was a good conversation. We're going to bring it to you. The uh, It's moderated by Jacinda Yanders and also features Brienne Adams, Miranda Larson, Lori Morimoto, and EJ Nielsen. Awesome. Let's give it a listen. everyone. It is late January 2021 and we have a roundtable discussion here today about fan studies and media studies in relation to helping us understand the capital insurrection, right-wing extremism, social media radicalization, and any other related topics um, that have been relevant, you know, this month but also in the past uh, several years in particular. Uh, so before we get started, I'm going to invite the panelists to introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Jacinta Yanders. I'm an assistant professor of English at the College of DuPage. I'm Lori Morimoto. I am an independent scholar, and I currently am a lecturer at the University of Virginia in the Department of Media Studies. Uh, I'm E.J. Nielsen. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, Massachusetts. I study primarily fans, popular media, and specifically fan production, whether that's cultural production or material production. Hi, my name is Brian Adams. I'm a PhD candidate in American Studies at University of Maryland College Park. My dissertation research examines the interiority expressed concerning intimate relationships by Black fans on social media, from web series, TV, and albums. Um, my research questions focus on how Black fans create community through affirmative and transformative fandoms in order to examine and world build their lives through the cultural objects they are fans of. Hi, everyone. I'm Miranda Ruth Larson. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Tokyo. Um, I'm finishing my dissertation studying uh, K-pop fandom in Japan and all kinds of we want to call it parasocial, we want to call it effective labor, we want to call it all different kinds of relationships. Working towards finishing my dissertation, very happy to be here today to talk with you all. Um, so we're just going to jump in with sort of a broad contextual question. So what conversations um, have you all seen circulating about uh, right-wing extremism and fandom recently? What conversations have we not seen circulating about <laughs> fandom and right-wing extremism? It's been everywhere. I haven't seen the word LARP so much, or the acronym LARP so much, <laughs> ever. Um, but certainly not as much as I have in the last month. It's It's been something else. LARP and cosplay. I've seen a lot of use of the word cosplay. Uh, just like I've seen the word fan fiction depict, uh, directed at um, wishful political thinking. Uh, being called fan fiction. I mean, I know I personally uh, just since here definitely seen cosplay in relation to the the actual insurrection when they were like dangling from the rafters and all sorts of things like Call of Duty characters. 
And it's been used in kind of inexact ways, which is, you know, frustrating. On the one hand, you've got protesters, not just protesters. There's a picture of Sean Hannity doing his Fox News thing with a Punisher lapel pin on, you know, and so you have these people who are who are drawing on iconography of fandom and media uh, objects at the same time as, you know, they're, you know, dressing up as the Statue of Liberty or whatever. And even even those two things are not necessarily the same. But then when you add cosplay on top of it, you know, it's what EJ said about the implicit derision directed at that kind of behavior. You know, if you call it cosplay, you're downplaying it, you're you're sort of bemoaning the state of politics because it's gone fandom, you know, whatever. Um, it's frustrating to see people get so close to what's going on and yet kind of miss it. Yeah, I, I was actually going to bring up the Punisher thing because then you see the discourse around the cops have adopted mm-hmm. the Punisher symbol as a contrast to Black Lives Matter. You know, one of those thin blue line symbols that, that right. indicates certain racist perspectives. And there have been arguments over Marvel taking it back or... If Marvel's cracking down on these guys or failing to crack down on people using Punisher for this thing, as opposed to Marvel cracking down on other people using other symbols to mean other things. These media entities deciding how people are allowed to use the symbols, just as you have groups of people deciding how to use symbols. And sometimes that can be what I, as a terribly left-wing person, would consider a positive taking of a symbol and using it to claim and mean something. You see something like uh, Gritty, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Philadelphia Flyers how he has been adopted as the symbol of the resistance and anti-fascism. But then you have something like Punisher uh, being adopted by other groups, or I've certainly seen Captain America shield imagery mm-hmm. thrown around by those groups. Or, or of course, the, the original, which is taking a webcomic character called Pepe and mm-hmm. him becoming the mascot of a lot of the right-wing stuff and a lot of this fascist stuff, which contra the creator's intent or wishes or anything else that can't be uncoupled now he's a hate symbol he's on the property law center's dictionary of hate mm-hmm. symbols now which had nothing to do with the creator's original intent and it's also like have you watched the punisher are you familiar with captain america although if anti-fascist is a bad thing then i'm pretty sure nobody's reading anything at this point <laughs> you're not wrong Speaking to what EJ was saying, you know, it's interesting in the context of the recent protests in Hong Kong, which have been sort of frighteningly stifled, um, there as well, they were using a lot of popular culture iconography um, in very similar ways to how at the beginning of the Trump administration, uh, women were using, you know, Princess Leia and as as sort of a symbol of the resistance. And it's something that that I find interesting when it's in the context in the news media of right-wing extremism, suddenly this kind of iconography is juvenile, it's immature, and I'm not necessarily disagreeing, you know, as you say, they haven't really, they don't really seem to comprehend the meaning behind it. But when it's in the service of something that's progressive, suddenly it's a great thing, and we don't have a clear sense of sort of stepping back from the politics of how and why these symbols are used in protest and activism writ large. There's also, I think, quite a few mainstream articles that are talking about MAGA not only as being, uh, you know, cult-like behavior, but being a type of fandom. 
And some of those discussions, of course, we, we absolutely should be having. But in a lot of cases, especially with the Finnish terms, it does seem that they are either being used not with the correct context um, or oversimplifying some of the things that we're seeing um, by making a correlation to fandom. So and this might be a good time to throw out another question into mix. What do we think is missing from these conversations that are happening or and or what kinds of fresh perspectives do we think? Uh, fan studies, fan studies scholars can bring to the conversation? I think it's common in both fan studies and media studies to have the experience of either what you study is being very dismissed, but then someone dresses the Joker, shoots people up, and suddenly they go, wow, why isn't anyone studying this? Mm -hmm. If only we had some, you know, the the Neil deGrasse Tyson periodically rediscovering the humanities sort of situation. (laughs) And I (laughs) think if we just... Uh, maybe included us in these conversations earlier or acknowledged our existence that it wouldn't be this the media always playing catch up when something happens Mm -hmm. you know suddenly they're coming in and saying oh my god reddit did this oh my god whatever suddenly we have to have 50 million explains about what is reddit you know Mm -hmm. what is we're certainly seeing that with uh the gamestop Mm -hmm. uh short selling stock thing where a reddit community all got together and affected the stock market and that's that's absolutely you know, media studies, social media, fan mm-hmm. studies, these kind of collective behaviors without a clear leader. And that, that's all fanish stuff. Mm-hmm. And if we were engaged from the beginning, instead of possibly being pulled in at the end to, be, to, to give everyone the 30 the second soundbite version of what happened and why and what it matters, which never actually engages with the actual context or treats everything as this one isolated thing that happened once and will never happen again, and will never happen like this again, Um, instead of thinking about this is the same behavior, this behavior is the same as this behavior is the same as this one, and you can draw a line from Gamergate to what's happening now. And if we actually did draw those lines, we actually did talk about these these patterns and where some of the stuff is coming from, I think it would be a lot more productive than treating everything as this weird little thing that happened. Fans are weird. I don't understand it. Now it's going to vanish into the news cycle. And then something else will happen again because we've learned nothing. Absolutely. There was a, and, and, and speaking to what you were saying, there was a tweet by Whitney Phillips, who is at Syracuse University yesterday, January 28th. And it says, I'm hoping the shiny object of trolling slash the lulls won't transform this into the search for America's great next great anti-hero historically that's only incentivized worse behavior directed focus away from structural problems and provided cover for bad actors under the guise of fun and i'm reading this and yes absolutely because on the one hand this is in relation to gamestop but on the one hand you know i'm also sitting here going yeah stick it to the man but you see where this is going and i think fan studies sees it particularly keenly because we see it again and again and again and this is not dissimilar to and and miranda can and i imagine will speak to this this is not dissimilar to what happens when k-pop k-pop fans get involved in you know trolling the president or uh taking over a hashtag or whatever we're always looking we always because we separate them out into individual moments they're always exceptional, and the people who are doing them are exceptional, and it glosses over so much of the nuance of what's really going on in those communities and how this kind of thing, rather than being the exception, is sort of endemic to experiences of fandom. And I think it's that context that fan studies can bring if anybody were listening to us. It feels very much like 
groundhog day, you know, <laughs> like, um, People can mobilize online and do a thing. But didn't we just didn't we just have this conversation? Didn't this just happen? We literally just did this. Like why is this new information again? Yeah, I was just going to say, um, this is free about the article that came out in the Times where Paul Booth was uh, quoted on out of DePaul and um, just the title alone how pop music fandom became sports, politics, religion, and an all-out war, as if these things um, operate separately, or as if the fandom, obviously the fandom operates ideologically on different axes, but the same type of understanding of fandom writ large, which fan study scholars can bring to the conversations if we were thought of differently in terms of our studies, would shed a lot of light on what is going on. Um, so that article, while it was in the title, the overall understanding that the journalists put forward in the article didn't really make those connections. So we can readily, you know, see how politics, religion has its own type of fandoms, but pop culture fandoms are often not as um, taken as seriously. But if you can kind of use even what Paul was talking about in the article concerning all the things that we're saying just now, a lot of that would kind of not even be taken up in the news like it has been, and especially in that article. Miranda, I'd love to hear your perspective on that, with, <laughs> especially with the K-pop and liberating discourse. It's it really interesting how, how things are framed very differently. Like The same activity is framed very differently, depending on whether or not we're supposed to like the group that did it or not. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we see this anyway, even if we're staying within, quote unquote, mainstream fandom, right? That there's a, there's a difference. People like to say there are differences in fandoms between uh, enthusiasts of Game of Thrones v- versus people who are very, very into cinema, right? Yeah. To be a cinephile is a certain kind of fandom um, compared to being a comic book nerd and mm-hmm. from that, so on and so on. But yeah, I think there's really this danger in terms of whatever fandom is trending is treated as if they are the sudden exception. So for this, Jacinta said, um, they've suddenly learned how to mobilize online as if that's a new thing. <laughs> um And yes, well, absolutely. Um, In some cases, it is record breaking. It is um, the numbers are extremely impressive. You know, crashing websites is impressive. Um, But these are things that started, you know, when the Internet started. I think there's really a tension and a a problem with wanting to frame uh, whatever fandom is the shiny object at the moment as being inherently good, um, altruistic, uh, and well-meaning versus whatever the big bad, to use the fan studies term, is at the moment. Uh, so when a lot of K-pop fans coming really from TikTok, but then into Twitter, um, were taking over the uh, hashtags that were like alt-right and were also, quote unquote, buying tickets and then not showing up to Trump's rallies. There were all of these articles about how you know, K-pop fans are so enlightened, especially ARMY. They are so, they're so progressive. And these are the same exact structures and tactics that they use to harass fans of color, to harass media outlets that they disagree with, to harass the K-pop companies and the idols themselves that they don't like, which is often overlooked. And the celebration really obscures the fact that a lot of these tactics are toxic. And it changes, I would say, as quickly as from day to day as to 
especially for K-pop, whether the behavior is widely celebrated or then condemned. And it's extremely dangerous when we uh, tie it to what's going on right now, and especially in the U.S. with the rise of fascism, and to, to hold up some of these, these fan groups as being saviors. Because if you look at the actual activity that they're doing on a day-to-day basis that doesn't make the headlines for the most part, uh, it is absolutely not something that, that should be valorized. You know, one of the things in fan studies that I harp on a lot about is something that goes back to uh, Matt Hills's book, Fan Cultures, which is a 2002 book. And so, I mean, we've been talking about this stuff for a very long time. Um, and that is sort of this moral dualism that we get sucked into when we talk about these kinds of things. Is it good or is it bad? And we, we end up in a very kind of either or scenario when fandom, the practice of it, the things that a love of something motivates, that it can inspire, but also sort of precipitate, um, all of these things are very much a both and situation. And so when we get into these conversations, for example, about is it good or bad that, you know, people know how to, you know, game the stop, stock market? Well, it just is. These are actions that people eventually are going to find if they know how to do something and they have a reason to do it and they're sort of invested in it emotionally. You know, K-pop fans, is it good or is it bad? Well, yes, you know, it is. Yeah, I think you're definitely getting at what I love about fan studies and why it's so important to my work as a, a tool, a discipline and all of those things is the nuance is that we can tease out the nuance and the meaning of it because we're dealing with affective modes. So to be able to explain, you know, what's going on in these political fandoms really lets us look at the reality of it and theorize around that rather than trying to impose, you know, other types of um, critical thoughts on it without seeing what's really reflected back at us. Absolutely. Another trend I see in media discourse around fans that I think fan studies definitely pushes back on is this tendency to treat groups of fans. And we're talking about fans of things where they, they number in the thousands and tens of thousands and millions, whatever, as a monolith fans, fans, mm-hmm. doing things. Mm-hmm. fans, mm-hmm. just fans. <laughs> uh, and that's a problem uh, for a number of reasons. And part of that is who does the media think of as this fan phenotype uh, for ba- lack of a better word, you know, yes. who are they imagining as this fan? And a lot of times the way they talk about this fan, this one fan, erases every fan that, not just that doesn't do that, but but every fan that isn't that. And a lot of times that means, in some media fandoms, it means erasing everyone but but the straight men. In some fandoms, it involves erasing fans of color. Mm-hmm. You know, in some it's, or, or queer fans or whatever. I mean, any group that's a minority is often going to be the group that is erased, when they talk about what a fan does, what, what this fan does, what a fan of a particular thing does. And that becomes especially complicated when you're talking about some behaviors that fans of this group are doing on other fans of this group. You can't talk about what's going intra-community at all at that point. And, and that's a huge problem. I think that's a, a great point, uh, EJ. Thinking about like this good and bad and all that, you know, one of the fandoms that I wrote an article about was wine on earth fans, herbers. And I wrote about it because, you know, in my experience of fandoms, it is probably like the nicest fandom I have been a part of. But even with that, 
there is like a major gap that I often see in the fandom and it all it has to do with race, like you said. Um, and that tends to be a spot where some of the fans get a little bit prickly uh, <laughs> in, in how some fans of color have responded to things that have happened on the show. So Yeah, fandom is, a, this is great. Fandom is a microcosm of how we tend to operate. And that's why it's so, so, so important and necessary to continue to discuss as a, as a discipline and analytic to be able to apply all of what we're talking about to these larger issues is what's really um, missing, but is what's so rich about what we all do as scholars. Part of what we're seeing, um, or at least what I've been discussing quite a bit in terms of uh, K-pop fandom and Anglophone K-pop fandom, uh, to make it a little more narrowed down, is this rise in the metric culture um, of fandom equaling numbers, of fandom equaling sales. How many albums did you buy? How many times did you retweet this hashtag? You know, how much it, that's always been there as part of fan studies of look at how great my collection is. Look at how many times I saw this band in concert. It's not that it's anything new, um, but the hyper visibility of this hyper consumption is a little bit new. Um, and especially as it gets into realms where fan studies meets meets politics, it's really easy to see that the coverage is almost the same of this many people showed up uh, for a rally equals the same as this is what a box office turnout was. Uh, thinking about how this idea of quantifiable fandom, of quantifiable affect in some ways, absolutely is then seen in something like the fact that all of the capital rioters, so many of them felt the need to document like every second of what they were doing on social media, okay. like, like pics or it didn't happen attitude towards an attempt at the violent overthrow of the government being, being live tweeted, being live blogged, live tweeting the insurrection. I don't recommend recording yourself committing a crime. Like it's a bad idea generally. <laughs> But, you know, it seems like it comes out of that same impulse to prove that you're enough of an insurrectionist. To, you, have the re- you brought the receipts. Yeah. You're authentic. <laughs> right. It's an effective fandom in-group kind of community building based uh, response um, that I also think is mediated. Right. Which is why they had their cell phones out and why the FBI was able to um, identify a lot of people. Um, but then not only that. Tying into what you're saying, EJ, um, and Miranda, too, about these cultures is the the digital portion of it as well, right? So what are these different digital platforms? What are they providing us in terms of affordances for being able to have these conversations? So, you know, why it was so important for Twitter to shut down President Trump's, former President Trump's uh, Twitter feed, the Facebook, right? Um, and all of these different things, as well as Parler being taken off by Apple Media, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what does it mean for these digital platforms helping to create these communities? Um, and we have to really think about that in conjunction to fandom. And that's something that I'm very much interested in in doing, because on one hand, for certain fandoms, you're able to kind of get away with some of this if you are harming marginalized identities or where we have with like GameStop trying to stick it to the man or burning the city down because their sports team won or lost. But those who are doing justice work often are surveilled 
or um, their platforms are taken from them. So it's really also a matter of who is the fan um, that we have to continue to talk about. That's absolutely the case. And I think there's a lot of really good stuff happening in fan studies around uh, social media and how it is affecting fanish behavior. But to complicate that, because we haven't used that word yet in this podcast, and it's not a discussion unless I use that, and uh, problematic, there are quotas. I don't make rules. Uh, another thing that fan studies adds, because one of my special areas of interest is looking at pre-modern fandom, is looking at really old patterns of behavior, because people liking things a lot, people's behavior being affected by having a strong emotional connection with something else, people have always been doing that. People have always been fans. And there is a tendency in media to treat a lot of things as as though these behaviors sprung fully forth from the head of Zeus the minute we got a Twitter account, mm-hmm. you know, the minute that all of this would happen. And a lot of these behaviors were expressed differently. They're, they may well be facilitated by social media, but if you look back, people are people. People have a tendency to act in certain ways, and they've always had a tendency to act in certain ways, and especially in large groups. Fan studies can, I think, really help with being able to to have perspective on that, not just in terms of siloing a particular fanish behavior, but also treating things as though they just happened. They just occurred. We never had this before. We have no precedent for this. We have a precedent for this thing. I promise you. And I think that gives us perspective instead of just treating social media as always being the cause. No, it's a vehicle. It's not a cause. It certainly allows people to do stuff they weren't able to do before. But I feel like the desire to do that behavior or or some earlier form of that behavior has always been there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely mm-hmm. existed prior to this. Just as with, with Trump, you can absolutely deplatforming him made a huge difference and Twitter was absolutely key to him getting the kind of audience he had. But in terms of the underlying behaviors and whatever that, that he was facilitating, that he was feeding into those things, those mm-hmm. things predated Twitter. I mm-hmm. guarantee you those things predated Twitter by dec you know, in terms of what the Republican Party was doing with them, decades, you know, decades of work and various things feeding into what we see now. You know, there's there's all sorts of stuff. And treating it as though it's just Twitter, it's just social media, it's just this. And otherwise people would be uh, bucolic and pastoral. I don't know. Um, (laughs) People are people. Just to add to the sort of contextualizing, historicizing it that, you know, and we were just talking about them recording and all that stuff. And I think other people have probably talked about this online, but all you have to do is look up lynching photos from the early 20th century in the United States and look at all the happy people uh, happy white people specifically, um, next to bodies hanging in trees and things like that, um, and who had like no shame whatsoever about being in these photos, right? And that that's your context for it. Yeah, and the mediation of it, right? Mm-hmm. So digital media is just another form of mediation of it, which, you know, reflects the type of quantifiable effective mode that you all are talking about, really. It's just another tool, rather. Mm-hmm. Getting to what EJ is saying and bringing up another thing that I think fan studies scholars bring to the table that has gone largely unrecognized and even, I would argue, sort of dismissed. We are really, really comfortable talking about affect and emotion. And this is something that academia has (laughs) completely pushed aside that the news media is afraid of. And so when we see these groups 
whether they are, you know, the good fans or the bad fans, when they're talked about, it's always with this kind of arm's length, you know, sort of trepidation. Well, we don't want to, you know, engage with the feeling. But fandom, as, as EJ is saying, it's as old as the hills because we love things, you know. Um, and if we don't understand the nature of love of a thing... Ooh. Of being so into it, yeah, that we, you know, we will do anything for it. I will travel to the UK. I will pay an obscene amount of money so I can stand next to Brian Fuller for, you know, a second. We understand this feeling because many of us have been there, not all of us, and it's not a prerequisite, but we do understand that this is part of what it is to be alive. You reminded me also that. You know, the place I think where people do understand all the emotion attached to fandom often has to do with sports fandom, but then they don't consider sports fandom fans like they consider other things fans because they don't think about those things the same way, right? Yes, as fandoms, yes. Yeah, so the question I want to throw in here, given the job market is the hellscape that it is, why, why should fan studies be explicitly named as sort of one possible area of specialization in critical media and film studies job announcements? I am really struck by the way that fan study scholars are able to view the wider picture, um, not just in the context of historicizing, like EJ pointed out, um, with having a body of knowledge about fan behavior um, and history of fan behavior, but to see these patterns happening (laughs) and, and not having an issue drawing connections between different fandoms and naming the patterns, what they are, which is, as Lori said, the, the coveting, the loving of the thing. So for me with a background in film studies, but also doing this work with K-pop fans, I am amazed that I have continuously had the same conversation with cinephiles who are considered to be quite acceptable fans in terms of media studies and K-pop fans. And they both use the same three word phrase paved the way. And if I hear it one more time, my head's going to explode. But I've recognized that it's the same ethos motivating both. It's the, the same thing that drives someone to be an autorist fanboy of Snyder is the same thing behind uh, an army fan account that harasses idols saying other idols saying that they're not real musicians. It's the same motivations for a lot of it, even though it's not monolithic. But the fact that I can draw that connection is something that I learned how to do coming from a fan studies and a cultural studies background. The other thing that I wanted to touch on really briefly, um, as we just mentioned, sports fans, too, is being a kind of legitimate fandom. Everyone is a fan of something in the, the capitalist hellscape we occupy because fandom is one of the only ways that we think we are allowed to express ourselves. So to be dismissed as fan studies scholars, well, this is the reality of everybody, uh, even if they don't want to admit it or they don't uh, wear it on their sleeve the same way that, that other people do. Uh, this is something that impacts people's daily lives. And to not be listed as a possible specialization is not only insulting, but it's really denying the lived reality of regular people. 
to follow up on those with a few other points. One of them is is a practical consideration, which is just that fan studies is historically a really great way to meet students where they are Mm -hmm. by telling them that the way they feel, what they're interested in matters, like is worth studying, is worth talking about, is worth engaging with. A lot of times when they have offered classes on popular culture stuff, as much as there's always the news article about, oh, my God, they've got a a class on Gossip Girl. People love those (laughs) classes. Like students Mm -hmm. love those classes. They're interesting. They're engaging. They're a great way to get students. Um, But on top of that, look at what fan studies does. Fan studies looks at what happens when people feel strongly about stuff. And get together in groups to do things based on the fact that they feel strongly about that. That is the human condition. I mean, that's so broadly applicable. And in terms of media specifically, and this is my interest in one of the many reasons I'm so interested in media fans and fan production is that, again, we see see this even in newspaper articles. They love using media comparisons. They love referring to a book or a character or a film or a TV show because we have this shared language. And when someone likes it, that's where it's a problem. But instead, this is this shared cultural language we have through media. We all know, or many of us know and share certain stories, certain ideas, certain whatevers. We saw them as a kid, we watched them together, we like them now. And that's how we explain some of the world. These Media is a tool that we use in our contemporary society to explain and understand and create meaning. There's so much that, that fan studies has to bring to the table. And a lot of it is stuff that is potentially otherwise absent just not there. There's not a lot of overlap between what a lot of universities say they want studied and and what we're doing, even though the interdisciplinary possibilities are endless. You know, one one thing as a fan studies scholar that I find a bit frustrating, and I know that people at the very least in television studies will likely have very much a similar experience, if not exactly the same, is everybody thinks they know about it. Because I watch television, I know how to talk about it because I'm a fan of something or I have become a fan of something. I know how to talk about it. The difference in the context of, yeah, the difference in the context of fan studies is that, you know, this is, this is a, a discipline that is over a quarter of a century old. We have had a lot of the discussions that people who are new to fandoms sort of come in having you know we keep coming back to that issue of of the moral dualism of is it good or is it bad and we have a difficult time moving past that because not to put too fine a point on it but people haven't done the reading you know do the reading know that we have talked about this stuff and if we were included more in the academy i think we might have a fighting chance of actually encouraging people to sort of meet us where we are rather than constantly having to sort of have the same arguments again and again and again, while simultaneously trying to push forward our own knowledge of how fandoms operate. Any other final thoughts as we start to wind down? Yeah, I was just going to say that I'm glad that there's so many, there's so much good scholarship that's coming out right now from those who do fan studies. And there's really starting to be a growth and abundance of people who are both critical of it as a discipline, but then also still utilizing some of the main tenets to kind of get to um, their research questions, right? And because of that, there's so much nuance that fan studies can bring to the table as we've kind of summed up over 
our, our conversation that is really important to bring to every discipline, um, no matter what it might be. I think that uh, wraps up our time for today. Uh, thank you to everyone, um, all the participants in the roundtable, and everyone listening at home or wherever you are. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Have a good day, night, whatever. <laughs> Have a good time. Thank you. Bye. So really uh, interesting conversation there. Thanks again to Stephanie Brown for putting that uh, group together and for all of the participants. Uh, I'm struck especially by the point about emotion, about how we, and it's sort of an area that's that's under-researched in terms of our, our um, area of studies, about the role of emotion and, and how, what that plays in you know spectatorship and then also action and the ways we um, enact our fandom in certain ways. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And... I mean, obviously, the people who, who really study this in, um, you know, either in a kind of psychological way or phenomenology or something, the, um, even the kind of critical language that we have to, to describe and characterize and analyze emotion is really uh, underdeveloped, at least within media studies. And it isn't so much a part of our experience. I mean, how often do we all talk about how, you know, a certain moment in a in a TV show gives us the feels and we, and we, we want to capture it, but we can't fully make sense of it. Uh, and it seems like there's still some work to be done there. Yeah. And it's also heartening. Uh, there in that conversation, some young scholars are uh, still working on dissertations. And so more great work to come. I think it's a great sign for, um, you know, the idea of all these questions still being out there that we've got some, some young scholars working on that great material. Yeah, and uh, that that field has uh, I don't I don't think it was ever ever uh, just simply uniformly celebratory, I and mean, there was always a, um, a kind of complicated politics to fandom. But who boy, there's some mm. there's some heavy lifting to do to figure out uh, this whole web of uh, cultural engagements. Yeah, complex objects of study and uh, complex methodologies. And we like that around here. We do like Academia. that. We do like that. And speaking of dissertations, segue. <laughs> I'm not gonna... sure that was a segue, but but I think you can take it. Take it. <laughs> when I put a flashing neon light, does that make it not a segue? Is that <laughs> I'm I'm not a cat. I am not a segue. Um, we've got two more awards uh, winners, uh, award winners to bring to you. We do indeed. And One of which is yes. for a dissertation. Yeah, the best dissertation award that was won by Rachel Jackanowski at Concordia University for A Nation of Fur, Fish, and Fuel, Documenting Resource Extraction in Canada. And we have the citation that would have been read at SCMS in Denver. Is that where SCMS was supposed yeah. to be? Yeah. All right, Denver. So if you look at your window right now and it's snowy and cold, that's probably you know what it feels like in denver right now it's so, probably what it feels um, like to be a nation of fur fish and fuel for that matter indeed very fitting um and the chair of the uh dissertation award uh carly kosarek 
um, offered the uh, following citation for the award. Rachel Jekinowski's dissertation focuses on a unique group of understudied films within an understudied film genre, within an understudied national cinema, and opens up a wide variety of questions and methods for future research. Studying the industrial rather than the mainstream films of a national cinema allows Jekinowski to question basic tenets of how film studies is organized as a field and shows how film can be meaningfully interjected into other fields, specifically in relation to how we conceive connections between the environment, nationalism, and indigeneity. This dissertation is extraordinarily well-written, filled with detailed analysis, sprawling historical research, and humbling insight. Here we have an important contribution not only to film studies, but to environmental studies, indigenous studies, and cultural studies. A Nation of Fur, Fish, and Fuel demonstrates how research and film studies can help us understand not only our films and our culture, but our world. So here's my uh, conversation, then, with Rachel Jakinowski. All right. Welcome to the Acomedia podcast, Rachel Jekinowski. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure, we're um, extremely uh, happy to to be able to honor the award winners here in a way that you couldn't have been, uh, unfortunately, in Denver. And you won the dissertation award from SCMS. So can you tell us a little bit about the origins of that project? And, and the title of the dissertation is A Nation of Fur, Fish, and Fuel, Documenting Resource Extraction in Canada. So what are uh, what were the origins of that project? My dissertation was several years in the making. I am originally from the United States, and I'm speaking to you here from St. John's in Newfoundland. But I moved to Canada around 2008, I suppose. Uh, And through the course of my undergraduate studies, my master's work here, I spent a great deal of time reflecting on the differences between uh, mainstream American culture and Canadian culture and the different types of film and particularly um, archival film practices between these two countries. Um, And as I was meditating on this kind of work, I found myself reflecting a great deal on the types of I guess, myths and stories that I grew up with in New England uh, around the settlement of the United States, uh, different national myths about manifest destiny, and really trying to reflect on the types of, I guess, settler colonial culture that I had grown up in and now that I saw myself living in Canada. Uh, so this is kind of going on in the background I was I've, as I was developing my dissertation research. Uh, and over coffee one day with some um, friends and collaborators, Uh, I was talking about the different kind of film histories in Canada and thinking about the colonial, um, you know, as one does over coffee as an academic, right? Thinking about the colonial histories of filmmaking practice and documentary. And uh, one of my friends had mentioned that his wife was now working at the Hudson's Bay Company Archive in Toronto, which actually had a really interesting collection of films documenting early mercantile networks, uh, the fur trade in Canada, and how that fit in with some of these ideas we were talking about. So all that to say, this project literally was born out of, I guess, my own personal trajectory as a white settler who had emigrated to Canada, or excuse me, had moved to Canada and now was doing some of this work and thinking about histories, layered histories of empire and colonialism, um, and some of the archival collections that I came in contact with. My dissertation is primarily looking at these types of cultural, economic, and environmental entanglements around land use, around natural resource extraction, and how that shaped the emergence of uh, documentary, nonfiction, and institutional filmmaking practices in Canada from around 1920 
to the mid-1980s during that period of cinematic and video production. Uh, And by looking at this collection of films, which have been primarily overlooked in mainstream accounts of Canadian filmmaking or colonial filmmaking practices, I was trying to return to that question of how fundamentally countries, settler colonial countries like Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Israel, used film and media practices as one more space to negotiate these forms of settler myth building uh, and nation building around landscape as a way to uh, legitimize settler claims to place um, and build settler identities in a really visceral affective way through relationships to the land, through ownership of uh, so-called natural resources, uh, through economic and social and cultural practices. And I would say uh, all of this, this long historical process that I'm trying to uh, chart in my dissertation is really only the first step in what I consider uh, my work as a film historian, which is doing that work of excavating these cinematic histories as a way to then ask, well, what now can aspects of white and settler academia, um, what can scholars like myself do to try and redress these historical and continuing impacts of settler colonialism? How can we work with uh, Indigenous communities, Indigenous activists, Indigenous scholars and writers and filmmakers who have been doing this long, very important work for decades, centuries of asserting their own sovereignty, their own stories? Um, how can we continue to yeah, redress these histories? Well, no dissertation is easy, and it sounds like yours especially has to usher together a lot of different materials, a lot of different disciplinary approaches. So was that part of, did you, I presume you enjoyed that that challenge of the dissertation? Yes, yeah, immensely. And I would say I have to thank uh, so many colleagues and collaborators, uh, particularly several folks in a reading group that I joined partway through my PhD at Concordia University, Um, This reading group was comprised of colleagues and peers from, at that point, Ryerson University, McGill University, and Concordia's Communication Studies Department. And we were all coming to the space as white scholars who were trying to very meaningfully engage with our own position as settler scholars, um, but read about environmental humanities, read about indigenous decolonizing work. Um, around environmental relations and what Anna Singh calls these broader ecological and environmental entanglements. Uh, So this reading group is really instrumental for me in being able to hone uh, my own interdisciplinary focus and draw on energy studies, the environmental humanities, anthropology, uh, indigenous scholarship, critical indigenous scholarship, decolonization theory, and of course, as mentioned, um, political economy film studies, media (laughs) studies, of course, and um, other writing about the material turn, infrastructure studies. Um, I'm even drawing um, tangentially on animal studies in my work on the Hudson's Bay Company because so many of these films that I'm looking at are highly ambivalent documents that are framing uh, relationships between non-human animals, humans, environments um, in a way that I guess, open up an unruly interdisciplinary collection of issues around around relationships to landscape and economy and how cultural production really emerges from these kinds of relationships, but also continue to frame them. 
And unfortunately, we can't celebrate your work in Denver, um, but we'd like to take our listeners back and let us imagine what life would have been like in Denver. So <laughs> so what were you hoping to get from the SEMS experience and especially to be able to, to celebrate winning this award? Yes, I would say that the biggest disappointment of um, SEMS not going forward is that it would have been just such a lovely opportunity to spend a few days with friends and collaborators who were really scattered all over the place. I've been working with a number of collaborators at McGill University, uh, University of Alberta, many universities in the United States. And SCMS is always this opportunity to have that face-to-face time and get in touch with people who I've been working with remotely, Um, particularly now that I am out in a rocky outcrop (laughs) in the Atlantic Ocean. It can be difficult to maintain some of those research and personal networks without that kind of face-to-face time. But I would add, I know this isn't answering your question, but I would add that Now, because of the pandemic and um, having to put so much of my work and personal life into a remote video conference setting, in many ways, it's forced me to think more critically about my place-based work. I am continuing to work on media and settler colonial relations through culture here in Newfoundland. So being able to, I guess, having that opportunity to continue that work despite the pandemic has felt quite important. So long way of saying, although I won't be able to celebrate with my collaborators and peers in Denver. I feel really fortunate I've been able to do that here with many of my collaborators locally. I would say the biggest celebration though of this project has been able has been just being able to um, I guess see that kind of validation of a Canadian centric research project and a project that puts a critical framework of settler colonial image production front and center. There's so much writing about post-colonial theory and um, filmmaking practices coming out of colonies that there's often this belief in Canada and the United States that we've somehow entered this post-colonial moment, especially here in Canada, given the work around the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. There's this popular belief that we're somehow past colonialism. And um, I consider it part of my work to echo or uh, amplify what Indigenous scholars have already been saying for a long time, which is that we continue to live in colonialism. We're in the colonial present. And what now can we do about that? So I would like to thank the committee for uh, the dissertation award and also for making that space for projects that are trying to push, I guess, within our own field of film and media studies, that more critical engagement with the colonial present that we live in and how that shapes media production today. Thanks for thanks for doing that interview, Chris. It's nice to nice to hear about this work. Um, I was really I was struck by many things, but um, one is that uh, the sense of of moving to a, even a slightly different uh, national context and national culture uh, gives gives the um, a scholar a, a a different kind of view. And and um, I have to wonder if um, even just relocating from New England to uh, Canada gave her just a, a, a a different frame within which to start looking through that material. 
Yeah, and that's a good lesson for all of us of, uh, you know, moving beyond our, our American centricity and, um, you know, even Western centricity yeah. of, uh, you know, expanding into different ways of looking at things. And particularly given how much that material is tied to the national, I think that becomes a really important uh, point to consider. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but um, I find my teaching becomes more geographic every single semester. Um, you know, both of us teach uh, TV history in different in a variety of um, ways and different classes and stuff. And and maybe it is just a pushback against um, the kind of uh, general cultural sensibility from students, where you, they they their TV use is less or is felt to be less placed than than maybe it once was. And you know, like I really struggle to to get them to really intuitively recognize how like individual broadcast signals are, are geographically located and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but also just the consequences of our media use are, are so deeply, deeply connected to our, our, both our present and our histories of place. And that's right. I love this kind of stuff. Um, and I, I love that it's, you know, more historically rooted, but I'm also really, really interested in pulling those conversations forward and, and keeping, keeping the kind of geographical imagination active in more contemporary studies too. Yeah. And it's great that, you know, the work itself is great and also great then that SCMS recognized it for these, yes, again, you know, sort of connection back to the film studies conversation, really important work that we need more of, that there are large gaps um, in, in our scholarship that we can fill. And so thank you to Rachel Jackanowski for filling in one of those gaps. Yes. And we have another award conversation, which I, uh, which you pursued that I enjoyed listening to about blowing stuff up. Yeah, explosions. And uh, this is the Best Essay Award won by Pansy Duncan. And the essay title is Exploded Views, Early Cinema and the Spectacular Logic of the Explosion. And the chair of this committee was uh, Elizabeth Evans, and she shared this citation. So, uh, the essay discusses the explosion film, which briefly flourished in early cinema. Uh, the author situates her analysis of the explosion device and its capacity to isolate, disintricate, and arrest objects for view during and also beyond the historical period of early cinema to discuss its significance in the ever-developing de discourse on the technologies of vision in cinema studies. Duncan's essay significantly intervenes in the existing film theory and early film history with an important implication for contemporary conceptions of vision. It foregrounds the violent and destructive aspects of modern vision and visuality, and by extension, the violence of modernity. Much of her argument applies to contemporary film and media as well and is relevant to our ongoing attempts to understand the appeal of mediation. This outstanding essay thus contributes to the field of film and media studies by performing original research that challenges and updates the existing body of research, engaging with relevant theories of film and visuality, and deftly forging solid connections between early film history and contemporary film and media scholarship. It performs this task with flawless prose that does not get too descriptive or remain analytical, and elegantly displays rigorous historical research based on clear, robust evidence and methodological and theoretical solidness. All right, and this is Pansy Duncan, who I've chatted with here from Massey University in Auckland, New Zealand. All right, take it away. Welcome to the Acamedia podcast, Pansy Duncan. Thank you, thank you. It's a real honor. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, it's great to have you here. We're in early 2021 now. I was just commenting to her. We've taken a while with these these interviews, but we're uh, and and the new awards have been announced. But we're really thrilled to be able to get all of the uh, the 2020 award winners in here. You are the 2020 SCMS Award winner, the Catherine uh, Singer Kovacs Essay Award for your essay entitled "Exploded Views: Early Cinema and the Spectacular Logic of the Explosion." Uh, and of course, speaking of a while, it's been a while since you probably wrote this, but uh, could you fill our listeners in on what you covered in this article? I was essentially arguing that this repeated recourse to the explosion in early one-shot films made between approximately 1899 and 1903, so a short period, in a cycle of films that I called the explosion genre, that the explosion device functioned as a kind of optical prosthesis that operated to isolate and accentuate and disintegrate and kind of arrest objects within the frame for view. Um, and that it did so in the absence or kind of in lieu of an established formal language for breaking space down into partial overlapping views. So in lieu of, of montage or mere, more varied shot types to kind of deliver the, the, the object to the viewer for, for scrutiny and, and examination. And I, at the same time, I kind of suggest that this device, the explosion device, served as a model for the development of that formal language strategies that would obviously become the building blocks of cinematic spectacle in, in the later attractions era, um, like the close-up and so on. Yeah, I guess in some ways I was taking a matter, I was in dialogue with a, a specific interpretation of the attractions model of early popular entertainment films, where, where critics have cast these films primarily as a kinetic mechanism, so a means of producing sensation. And, and where the explosion film has been discussed at all, it's, it's really been um, mortgaged to, to this specific interpretation of the attractions model. Um, so it's been framed as a sort of spark to excitement with an emphasis on the explosion's destructive powers, um, whereas I was trying to suggest that it had a, a kind of productive optical and epistemic force and functioned in a way as a, as a tool of vernacular inquiry. And there's such fascinating depth to that, that, you know, early cinema technique. And it also just makes me think of, because you said it's kind of one of the building blocks of, of cinematic language and how much it still reigns today. I mean, just thinking of like TikToks I've seen that use kind of similar models. And so it's amazing how, how sustained that kind of material has been throughout visual culture, even not just film history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when I was when I was working on this essay, I was I sort of saw it as part of potentially as part of a book project. I was wanting to trace the evolution of the explosion across film history because it does seem to. I mean, it's not it's not just, what what I was trying to argue across all of the the pieces that I wrote on the explosion was that it's not just an object for film spectacle. It has this sort of really um, intimate relationship with film language, and there's a reason why we keep re- returning to it because it, it sort of unpacks fragments sort of brings to view um, in, in ways that are really complementary to formal mechanisms within the, the apparatus. So yeah, I, that was one of the things that I was trying to get at. And I, the book hasn't turned into a book. Um, but I think, yeah, there's definitely a reason why it's such a prominent, ubiquitous device. Um, and it's not just because we like looking at bright lights. Um, <laughs> so this is part of a larger work then? No, well, no, it was it was meant to be. Uh, essentially, I I wrote a piece on the implosion, which I saw as kind of a contemporary iteration of the explosion, where the the explosion had kind of collapsed in on itself. And I was I saw that device appearing in a number of films, and I examined that. But then I think when I, when I'd finished that essay, I realised that actually it was odd to be sort of silly to be writing on the subspecies of the explosion when when the explosion itself, um, which was far more common, really hadn't had the attention that it deserved. So yeah, I started working on that. Essentially, I've, I've 
produced two essays on that subject, um, one in screen and one one that's been published in JCMS, but the methodologically they're so um, diverse, really, I don't think I could bring it together into a book at this point. So um, I don't think that will happen. All right. Well, that's at least then a good one-off uh, experience then to get, get two great publications out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you working on now? You said you're on sabbatical. So what uh, what is occupying you research-wise during your sabbatical? So I'm meant to be working on a um, project that has a grant attached to it, um, but it's an early cinema project. So it requires a lot of archival work. And yeah, I'm not really able to, obviously, can't, I can't travel for obviously obvious reasons and um yeah so I've kind of put that on hold and I'm working on two invited pieces um which are which are unrelated although one's one's vaguely related but yeah I, I unfortunately I'm not able to do the the big book project at the moment yeah that's tough I, um we are running a, a side uh, series talking television at crisis in the last episode um that question came up about how the pandemic has affected people's research agenda it was really striking to hear how you know it's like there was someone who who's studying like experiential media and comic-con and there's no no one showing up for experiential media or going to comic-con and so the idea of like you just have to stop your agenda and find other things that you can still research it's got to be a really striking especially when you get a sabbatical then yeah to have to kind of figure out what to do with that sabbatical has got to be really challenging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. I mean, I like starting new projects, and I get, I'm easily distracted, so it's kind of fun for me to have, a, in a way, to have an excuse to just sort of start something new and set the the kind of intimidating bigger project um, aside for the moment. But um, but yeah, definitely from a career standpoint, it's it's not a great use of this very precious uh, six months um yeah I mean I mean I'm enjoying it I've also got a little baby so I probably wouldn't be able to travel anyway so what uh then when you get back in the classroom what kinds of courses do you teach um what do I teach it's been so long (laughs) I teach an advertising and consumer society course I teach a digital media course um I taught a modern sort of modern literature and culture course as well because we were although our, our department is while I was on parental leave, it was disestablished and merged with another department. But and we were a film, media, and English course, so I taught a couple of papers that merged literary and media studies. Um, yeah. So from a teaching perspective, I'm pretty uh, chaotic. I don't think my teaching really has too much to do with my with my research agenda. Yeah, I was going to ask if you taught any any of the early cinema material in the classroom, or was that just strictly research? Yeah, no, that's that's that was just a research thing. Um, so no, I haven't I haven't had the opportunity to do that. Well, it sounds like there's some fascinating research to come for you as well. Then, so we'll we'll look forward to uh, future essays from you and hopefully more award winners. Not to put pressure on you, but mm-hmm. hopefully more more award winners. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> All right, thanks for the chat. Thanks a lot. It's a real pleasure. I confess I have not uh, gone and, and read the essay, which I w- really want to do, um, but I really loved the conversation. Yeah, I, just, I, I love the, the, the work and digging back and especially, again, thinking about that importance, importance of history and how much, like I'm thinking back to the early grad school and like the attractions was like the first thing I read about and again and again throughout, you know, and that comes up and you feel like, okay, I got got a good handle on this. But I never thought of thinking through something as detailed as the explosions and that kind of like rework that and think that. And even then it ultimately kind of makes us rethink the concept of interactions. Like that's a pretty incredible um, accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these are like 
basic building blocks of visual language that we still uh, haven't really entirely mapped out and made sense of. And I love that when you when you were talking with her, you you connected it to um, you know much more recent stuff like you know the the kind of grammar of a TikTok video and that kind of thing. Yeah, I've been bringing TikToks into my intro to film class, uh, film and television class. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like the Kuleshov effect and, you know, Melies type tricks and all the stuff that, again, you know, go back to these fundamental elements of just how the, you know, visual culture works going back over a century. And it's really fun to, to you know, pick out some stodgy old thing in the textbook and then show them a tech- TikTok of someone doing exactly that. Yeah. And it's really fun to kind of make it you know, come even more live for them that way. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. Good stuff. Indeed. Uh, and it, it, it's so nice to, uh, I know, you know, we've been um, slow as everyone is during the pandemic and uh, our apologies to the award winners for, for taking so long to draw attention to your work. But I love these. Uh, I love the, I love the award show. You know, I actually really enjoy it. Uh, and, I love hearing about the the work that people are doing because it's just it's uh it's so refreshing and and um energy producing. I, I just I just love hearing about people's projects. And again, throwback to or a callback to a point earlier made. It gives me feels. It you know it, it really makes me proud and and excited to see people doing such amazing work and to be able to clap for them because we don't no one claps for us when we finish an essay, right? And so, um, you know, to get a chance to at least, the you know, the ones who've won, to clap for them and yeah. to, you know, help them feel good and, and especially feel like, you know, and, and the kind of larger, deeper issues, they've affected the field in some way. And I think that's really important. And, and, it, and it, it's great to be able to acknowledge that. Yep. Yes, it is. But yeah, we have caught up now. The um, early, you know, the new awards are out, so we're still on last. That's like just shows how long we're, and not so much how long we're taking with this, but how long between episodes we're going. But again, pandemic, not our fault. Yeah. Uh, are you watching anything good? I have been watching a, a show that's airing in Britain right now, and it'll come to the U.S. later. So I guess I can provide an advanced tease. It's called It's a Sin. It's Russell T. Davies' new series. Oh. It's getting a lot of claim, but also then some. I wouldn't say backlash. That's not fair to the backlashers, but um, just there was sort of this immediate explosion of, of how this is incredible. And then people are now more carefully parsing through it. And so I think it would be really some interesting conversations to be had. It's set in, um, in the eighties, the early uh, days of the AIDS crisis mm-hmm. and how it starts being something they hear about, especially in America. And it's this faraway thing. And then it comes to hit home um, in London. And so it's, Russell T. Davies style, very emotional storytelling. Also then, of course, the other layer to it, the story of a virus that's spreading and no one quite knows how they should take it seriously. And Uh, some people are blowing it off and some are taking it seriously. So um, going back to Russell T. Davies, one of his previous series, Years and Years, which I highly, I highly recommend, but also it's, it's heavy and difficult and all kinds of crazy parallels to the pandemic and it aired before the pandemic happened. And so um, just the way in which that a series like that can make you, you know, and that's kind of what you want art to do also is to make you think through what you're going through and, and rethink through and, and reanalyze it. And so um, it's a sin might have some issues, but it's, it's brought up a lot of interesting thoughts for me. Uh, good. I, I will definitely check that out. I was, uh, I do a, a an eighties um, politics and style class and we do the AIDS crisis and, uh, you know, look at a couple of the film, the, documentaries from that period and stuff and the discussions with the students this time this was uh last fall um 
it was really, really intense and very, very interesting to to talk through the AIDS crisis as a as a public crisis with them, and it resonated in ways that that obviously it was um, that it wouldn't have, you know, six months earlier or, or a year earlier. Yeah, and I think it's important to to bring that kind of discourse back up in the pandemic era because I've seen you know people taking a task for saying like, oh, we've never been through a public health crisis in our lifetime yep. or, you know, we've never had to have this kind of, you know, powerful messaging and like, well, no, you're forgetting, you know, and, and, and particularly, again, the notion of, of the way in which our politicians failed and failed badly. And yes. so many people died who didn't have to die because of how badly we were failed by our um healthcare system and, and, and politicians. And so it's important to remember that not just in and of itself, but for understanding how these things happen. Yeah. My contribution to the, to the screening notes is, um, lighter. Um, I find myself Good. constantly watching, you know, like any kind of, um, European, Scandinavian, British noir kind of stuff, mm. um, mostly because it's not here. You know, so uh, Trapped, right. which is Iceland, and uh, Shetland, which is set in the Shetland Islands. And also uh, a total confection, um, Lupin. The, uh, I was going to ask if you'd seen Lupin, because I've seen a lot I've about seen it on a my couple Twitter of feed, episodes, so. and it's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't have anything smart to say about it, um, or <laughs> uh, particularly critical or insightful or anything, but it's just kind of nice to go somewhere else. Right. Well, and that's another good point about geography, how fluid our geography is these days, that we can relatively easily go other places through our uh, television sets. You get the last word. Yay. Actually, no, I do. Okay. I am not a cat. Oh. If I knew French, I would say that, you know. Je ne suis pas un chat. There you go. That's nice. Mm. It's not, it's not that nice, I'm sure. I'm sure I just <laughs> bent someone's ear out there. Um, well, thank you all for listening and, and uh, indulging us in, our, in this conversation that at least I enjoy quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Acomedia is produced by a, a team of fantastic people. We are grateful to the uh, University of Notre Dame and to Denison University for financial support. And to SCMS, thank you so much for your support. We also uh, have a fantastic producing team of our own, including Stephanie Brown, who organized uh, this uh, roundtable, as well as Bill Kirkpatrick from Denison University and Todd Thompson down at University of Texas. And we've also got Frank Mondelli at Stanford University and Joel Neville Anderson at Purchase College. We are grateful for all of their help and collaboration. I think we're now at the point where we can say, over the years... Over the years. This is episode 57. Think of all those flavors we have. Wow. Yeah. And I was actually reminded of uh, describing to someone our War of the Worlds episode and went back and looked at that transcript, which, first of all, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. Um, highly recommend it. We'll link to it in the, in the show notes at our website, acmedia.org. And uh, that was back in 2013. That's a long time ago. Man, we were good. Oh, how are we doing this that long? I just, where does the time go? We were something. We were. So, yeah, go check that out. All right. Uh, you can reach us at... I'm putting you on the spot. Uh, let's see. We got an email address, info at... Acca-media.org. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Our website with just info at in front of it. All right. Yeah. We've got a Twitter. 
that is ACA underscore media. Got a little twist yeah. there. And I think and, that's it. Uh, is that it? We're on it. Facebook. Oh, we got Facebook, too. You can find us on, you, can, yeah. you know, do a Google search. You'll find us on Facebook. We're around. Thanks right. for listening. Uh, stay warm and... Uh, stay not a cat. Yeah. All right. Or be a cat, whichever works. You be you. <laughs> <laughs>